Well, before I begin, I want to just draw uh, some attention to our, our church family because I know they would want to know this. But we have some special visitors with us here this morning. Scott and Kara Bullock are here able to worship with us once again. That Scott's an army chaplain. He's been serving in Germany uh, for the last two years, and he has made his way back to Columbia, South Carolina uh, at this point. Uh, I was able to greet Scott yesterday uh, when you were here. Scott showed up, of course, at the men's retreat right before we had Taco Mama for lunch. Uh, but I wasn't able to greet Kara, so don't, don't forget, I know what you're doing, Scott. I picked up on that when you come through with that. And we also have another pair of visitors that are here with us. You've heard us often pray for these folks from our pulpit. Uh, and he's probably going to hate that I point out this, but Andrew Record and his wife Megan and his family is here worshiping with us this morning. Andrew is the pastor of Haven Baptist Church. He is one of the finest expositors in our area, and he's on vacation today. They were looking for a place to be able to come and worship. Folks, we are so honored that you are here. Uh, and I just want to say it is a joy to be able to pray for you and pray for your ministry at Haven, and we pray for your continued growth and the love among your people all the time. So, so thank you for joining us. And, and please, uh, some of you met them during Vacation Bible School, but if you haven't met them yet, please uh, come up and meet Andrea Megan and their family. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you for the interconnectedness of the gospel. It is only because of what Christ Jesus has done on our behalf, Lord, that, that we can not only have joy to know that we stand before you and have complete fellowship knowing that we have been reconciled to you by the blood of Christ, but we also have the sweet fellowship of believers. And we know, Lord, that this continues to keep happening not from anything that we do or continue to do here on the earth, but because of what Christ has done and what he continues to do as he mediates before your throne in heaven. Oh, Lord Jesus, we are so thankful that you are our high king, whom we pledge all allegiance to, and you are also our great high priest, who is always mediating your sacrifice before the throne, so that we always have assurance knowing that our salvation is secure because of the Lamb of God. So strengthen our faith this morning as we study Genesis, Lord. Let us be inspired uh, as we read these words. Holy Spirit, come and teach us. We pray this in the finished work of Christ alone. Amen. Well, if you will, please turn back in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 14. We are in our third sermon from the life of Abram. And to date, by far, I find chapter 14 to be unusual compared to anything else that we've seen in this man's life. In this chapter, we are introduced to Abram the warrior. And compared to events prior to this moment, this should surprise us. In chapter 12, we saw God's calling of Abram from a life of relative obscurity. And as we noted, there was no quality of this man that was particularly appealing about him. In fact, as we saw from Acts chapter 7, Abram delayed being obedient to God's calling. Eventually, he, his wife, and nephew leave the ease of his father's estate, and they relocate to the land of Canaan just as God desired. And when a famine comes to the area in which he's living... Abram seeks shelter in Egypt where he knows there's food rather than trusting in God's protection and provision in the promised land. And out of fear for his personal safety, he and Sarai deceive Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, regarding their marital status. God must rescue Abram from that situation via a plague upon Pharaoh's household. 
Last week we saw in chapter 13 that Abram's and Lot's possessions had grown so much there were not enough resources for both of their estates. Conflicts were arising between Abram's herders and Lot's herders. And then rather than having an ugly confrontation with his nephew, Abram passively offers a solution to allow Lot to choose the first of the land in which he would like to dwell. And Abram would separate. And as we saw, Lot went for the most fertile land where there were cities that were already established, and Abram was content to remain in the wilderness. So to see Abram become courageous and and get aggressive with a force considerably more powerful than his own seems out of character for this man. In fact, the whole chapter of 14, at least to me, seems a little odd. You not only have Abram going to war with these powerful kings, you also have this mysterious person of Melchizedek who appears briefly in the story. And you have this interaction between Abram and the king of Sodom. But this is only out of the ordinary if we stay on the surface level and focus on human events rather than what God is doing here. Therefore, I wish to tackle this chapter here in three sections. Let's first look at the conflict in which Abram engages. Then we're going to see in the latter part of the chapter, beginning verse 17, that it's obviously comparing two different kings. And then we'll ask ourselves, what is God doing in all of this? What is the purpose of these events in this chapter? And along the way, we're going to see how even an Old Testament war continues to apply to our lives. Let's begin here at verse 1. Now, it might seem a little confusing if you're not prepared with how historical events were normally portrayed within oral tradition. And between this verse and through chapter, or excuse me, verse 16, there are three sections here. There's a summary statement in verses 1 through 3 telling us what's about to occur. Then there's a detailed description of how this conflict occurred in verses 4 through 11. And then we're told how Abram got involved with it in the remaining verses. Now, the historian in me really wants to get into the minutia of these old kings and their kingdoms and and show you a bunch of Old Testament references of how they relate to different ancient events. But the prideful... And the practical side of me doesn't want to look bad trying to pronounce all of these names and places. It was fun watching Logan do it. Um, You know, but I don't want to try it. But if you become a pastoral intern here at Providence Baptist Church, we love the guilty pleasures or putting our interns through these kind of things. So let me briefly explain the first three verses of the summary statement of what is happening in just one sentence. All right, just one sentence. Four eastern tyrants suppress a revolt of five kings near the Dead Sea. Four eastern tyrants suppress a revolt of five kings near the Dead Sea. That's really all you need to know about these geopolitical events. That is what this summary statement conveys. Now, verses 4 through 11 give us the details, and they enlarge the picture of that. And here's what you need to know. And this is a good time to introduce you to some concepts that are going to have relevance when we look at the covenant in chapter 15. It would help if you think here of feudal lords, right, or, or a feudal estates. There is one great king and a bunch of smaller kings that serve him. In ancient literature, the great king was called a suzerain, and those that serve him directly were called vassals. 
The suzerain usually had the biggest army and superiority in weapons. He was the supreme power that ensured your protection from other invading armies, which usually also included his own. And in return, the vassal kings gave the suzerain regular tribute, a tribute of treasure and would supply soldiers whenever a foreign invader or a rebellious king got out of line. The suzerain in this political landscape is Ketelarmar, the king of Elam. He's been ruling now for 12 years, and in the 13th year of his reign, a group of territories in his south revolt against him. Now, in the ancient world, it would take time to marshal the forces to suppress such a revolt and plan for the march southward. They did not have troop transports like we have today. Ketelamar would need to work on his alliances with his vassal kings, making promises of giving a portion of any treasure or land that was seized in exchange for their support. And by the 14th year of his reign, he's ready to march down south and get his subjects back in line. And he routes the people groups of the Raphim and the Zuzim and the Enum and the Horites and a few Amalekites and Amorites that are living in what is now known in present day of En Gedi the city of Engedi, which is off the coast of the Dead Sea. Now, if you want extra details of these people, groups, and locations, I've included some of the references on your outline. So a little bit of the historian of me can still have a, just a little bit of satisfaction that I'm doing my due diligence here. Now, in verse 8, five kings in the region of the Dead Sea decide it would be a good time to band together and attack the battle-weary forces of Ketelarmar. And this battle between these two forces occurs in the Valley of Sidim. The rebellious kings are routed, and they were slowed down by the tar pits within that valley. And the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled for their lives. That flight led their cities unoccupied, and Ketelamar and his forces captured and seized all of their citizens and possessions and began to return back up north. And this is how we learn how Abram got involved from verse 12. Lot was no longer living near the city of Sodom as he was in the previous chapter. We now learn he resides in the city of Sodom despite its reputation. And because of that, he is captured by Ketelamar's forces. And one of the refugees of the battle runs to Hebron to tell Abram what has happened. Verse 13 has a unique detail. This is the first time that we have Abram described as a Hebrew, a descendant of Shem and Eber. No doubt Abram is known as being a foreigner, not a descendant of Ham or Canaan living within this region. When Abram hears of Lot's capture, he recruits his friends, Mamre, who in turn recruits his two brothers, Eskel and Anar, to chase down Ketelamir's forces. All three of these men were Amorites, and they would have been mad about having their people seized from Engedi. So they had some motivation here to get involved as well. Now, it's not clear how big the force overall was among these allies, but Abram was able to bring 318 of his own warriors with him. And this reveals two details for us later in the study. A, Abram had gained considerable wealth since leaving Egypt. The Lord was blessing him just as he promised. And B, his possessions had grown so large that he needed a trained army to protect them. 
These men all chased down and attacked Ketelamar's army. Now, before I go further, I need to make just a brief detour and make reference to an issue in verse 14 that concerns the serious Bible student. There's not a whole lot of reason to spend time on this, but there is an anomaly in this verse, in verse 14. The narrator tells us that these allies pursued Ketelamar as far as the territory of Dan, one of the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, considering that Genesis was written in the time of Moses, that is an anachronistic statement. The people of Israel do not even know where the territory of Dan will be until after the conquest, and more importantly for our purposes, after the death of Moses, whom we claim wrote this book. So in our transmission of scriptures over time, someone modernized the name of this area. Therefore, we need to ask, does this mean there's an error in the scriptures? After all, we're fond of saying that every word in the Bible is holy and unchanging. So is this a mistake? Well, the simple answer, of course, is no. When we speak of the words of God being without error, we are referring to the words themselves, not the transmission of the words as they are copied over time. I dare say that for the vast majority, you do not read the Bible in Hebrew and Greek, but in English. Someone has translated the words of God into your language. The translators make the best choices they can in order to communicate the truth of God to you. Not only that, the Holy Spirit, who is the source for all Scripture, imparts the truth of the Lord's words upon your heart. Even though the words have been written down from era to era and translated into multiple languages, the Bible is without error because the Holy Spirit ensures that it remains that way. But at some point, most likely in the early period of the Old Testament, some scribe thought it would be helpful to change the name of the location that his modern readers would understand. And that has been transmitted to us through the centuries. But that is not a mistake. Now, it would be a mistake if he got the location wrong and he told us that they pursued Ketelamar as far as New York City or to Bombay, India. That would be an obvious mistake. But the truth of this statement in verse 14 still stands. Now, to finish out this part, Abram and his allies win. And as a historian, it drives me absolutely batty that there's not more details about how the victory occurred over the superior force other than it happened at night and from Abram dividing his forces. We're not even told if the four invading kings lost their lives in the battle or they just fled. And the victory must have been pretty significant because these kings don't come back to exact revenge on Abram. And we're told Abram now has the possessions of all four kings. And considering all that the suzerain had conquered, that must have been a massive amount of spoil. What the pirates call booty, or the young people call bootay. Did I get that right? I have some young people going, no. All right. Abram and his allies returned from their victory. And they're met by two kings, the king of Sodom and the king of Salem. This is the first and only place in the Pentateuch that we're told about Melchizedek. And it is like he just appears out of nowhere and then returns to obscurity. But even in this brief encounter, there's some things that we can learn about him. First, his name in Hebrew means king of righteousness. And yet he is literally the king of Shalom 
which in Hebrew is peace. Most likely this would have been in the vicinity of present-day Jerusalem. And he's also described as a priest of the God Most High. This is the first time in the Bible that the word priest is used. It's used to, to identify someone who mediates between men and women and their deity. Even though Melchizedek does not use the formal name of Yahweh, Abram associates his own God as being the same as Melchizedek in verse 22. So Abram believes that they worship the same God. And look at the actions of Melchizedek. He has no stake in this war, but he comes out to greet and ask that God bless Abram and acknowledges that Abram has achieved his victory by the hand of the Lord. And he presents Abram with the gift of bread and wine, two items which will become the elements of the Lord's Supper. And note that he makes no demands upon Abram whatsoever. He's not asking for tribute or a tax to pass through his territory. His sole purpose is to bless Abram, praise God, and give him these gifts. And yet with no explanation, Abram is compelled to give him a tenth of all the spoils of his victory. This is curious indeed. And in a few minutes, we're going to have to look at other places in the scripture that can help explain some of this. Now, all of this is in contrast to Bera, the king of Sodom. Remember, he was a fugitive on the run from Ketelamar. He lost his kingdom and his possessions. You would think he'd be grateful to be saved. He does not thank Abram, nor does he bless him. But his first words are pushy. He orders Abram, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. This guy has no right to anything. He holds no leverage in this conversation, but he tells Abram, give me back my people. He's in the line with the, the character of the people of Sodom. In chapter 19, the citizens of Sodom will demand from Lot, give us the men in your home so that we might lay with them. And Abram's response is a little surprising. He states, he is a servant of Yahweh, God most high, and of him, being the possessor of heaven and earth, he owns all things. Anything Abram has is because of God. He does not need any of the Sodomites' possessions. He has something greater, the favor of Yahweh. And rather than have anyone say that Abram took from Bera, he gives it all back with the exception of food for his men and a portion to his Amorite allies. Unusual for the era, Abram received nothing for his efforts from beating, uh, beating here Ketelamar. Abram is demonstrating faith and dependence upon his God. So what are we to make of this tale of Abram's involvement in geopolitical affairs? Is, is this placed here only to enhance his prestige and, and demonstrate how he has grown in power and material possessions since he was called by God? Perhaps a little. That's how most people who believe in the health and wealth gospel want to interpret this story, that, it, that if you believe in God, that he will give you material rewards and grant you victory over your enemies. But one would only hold such an application if they're solely focused on the person of Abraham. But that's not us. We know that Abram may be the hero in this narrative, but he is not the central character of Genesis. God is the chief actor. So let's take a look at what the Lord is doing. That Abram has come from obscurity and Ur to becoming a powerful warrior, a, a king without a land yet per se, is truly remarkable. 
But these events do not occur at random. Now, I just want to point you to the first words of chapter 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. These events in the light of Abram. After his initial calling, after the death of his father, after his separation from his greater family, after his ruse in Egypt, after his conflict and subsequent division from Lot, after God's promise to give him a land and an heir, after Abram achieves victory over Ketelamar, after Abram acknowledges Melchizedek as a high priest worthy of presenting tribute, after his refusal to take any of the spoils of war, after these things, God now speaks and he formalizes his covenant with Abram. Abram now knows the character of Yahweh. He knows the might of his God, and he is learning to trust in the Lord's faithfulness to him. Now he understands who this God is that he's about to enter into a covenant formally. Abram is now ready after these things. And isn't that the same for all of us who know and believe in the faithfulness of God? We go through trials and tribulations. We come to understand the weakness of who we are and the greater strength of God. Through them, we learn trust and obedience. God's timing in our lives is always perfect. He is sovereignly directing events to draw you to himself. Perhaps he led you here today through a series of circumstances in order to meet him and hear his word, not in a vision, but from his perfect Bible. You don't have to have that kind of miracle. It's already been given to you right here. And what are we to make of this mysterious character, Melchizedek? Is he just a curiosity? Not if we believe in the perfect timing of God. Already the Lord God is foreshadowing something here in redemptive history. There will be a priestly king of righteousness and of peace who will present God's covenant people with the bread of his body and the wine of his blood that he will bless and mediate on their behalf. And one of God's first kings, David, recognized this in one of his psalms. If you will, turn with me to Psalm 110, 110. This is found on page 509 of your pew Bible, 509. And as you're turning there, allow me just to say that this psalm is one of the most quoted Old Testament passages in the New Testament. And for timing's sake, we're only going to be able to cover the first four verses. But I encourage you to read all of it later. But you can see from the heading, it is a psalm of David. Here we are, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, now note this, Yahweh, remember it's all capital letters, Yahweh, the God of the universe, is speaking to someone David acknowledges is greater than himself. And David was the current king of Israel. And this is what Yahweh says to this greater king. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. And this next verse is astounding. Not only will this person be king, but they will also be a priest. 
The Lord has sworn, or he has made an oath, that he will not change his mind. You, he declares, are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is not a priest from the line of the Levites, but a priest that preceded the Levites, one who is also a king of righteousness. Now, I don't think I have to spell this out that this refers to Jesus. I'm almost done, but allow me to ask you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 8. This is found on page 1005 of your Bibles. 1005. This is where the person of Melchizedek is explained fully in the New Testament. Now, for our purpose this morning, I want to start with the conclusion of this thought of the writer of this book. That is found in the first seven verses, okay? He writes, Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven, a minister in the heavenly places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it's necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all. Since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law, they serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is... Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it's enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. The writer says that Jesus is a greater high priest because he is currently in heaven mediating between the all-powerful God of the universe and his people. There's no more need for the former things of old because Jesus, who is greater, has appeared and completed the work of the priesthood. That is the main thought of the writer. But we need to see how Jesus can do this from the four previous chapters previous to this one. Now turn to Hebrews chapter 4, just a couple of pages over. Page 1003. Now don't let that intimidate you or scare you that I said I'm going to review four chapters. I promise I'm only going to hit the highlights. I want to eat lunch just like the rest of you, I promise. Most of this is self-explanatory. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. And now the writer is going to show us how Jesus is the greater high priest that we can come through in this next chapter. Chapter 5, verse 1. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he's obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. 
And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but he was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, what we read earlier, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So Jesus is the greater high priest because he is God's son, he is sinless, and he has been made a priest in the order of Melchizedek who preceded the law. Now, our author warns former Jews, starting at this point, that think they can return to the old ways of the Old Testament and think that they can somehow save themselves through perfect obedience to the law or blood sacrifices to atone for their disobedience. He states that won't save them. And believe it or not, such a notion is still relevant today. People think, well, I must perform good behavior before God. And when I fail to live up to that expectation, I must try to cover it with some other behavior, like giving money to the poor or serving at a homeless shelter or giving up some of my personal time to read the Bible or attend church, and then I'm going to be made okay with God. The writer warns people regarding this kind of thinking. His point is, if that God went to all this trouble to send his one and only son to be the sacrifice that would atone for sins, then we better not ignore it and think something else will save us. So look at the last two verses of chapter 6. Verse 19. Rather than count on something like that that's always moving, he says, We have this as a sure, steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, becoming a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And now he compares Jesus and the original Melchizedek from Genesis 14. Chapter 7, verse 1. For this Melchizedek... King of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is the first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils? And those descendants of Levi who offer the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. Now the writer has some really awesome stuff to say here. I'm going to count on you to meditate upon that later. 
But let's get to the big idea. Chapter 7, verse 22, with Jesus being a greater high priest in the order of Melchizedek. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priest were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. You should shout amen at that point. All right. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Do you see verse 24? Jesus stands as our priest, our mediator, before the throne of God for how long? Once? No, it's forever. He is there right now interceding for us. Oh, friend, look at verse 25. It is so relevant for us today. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost. Uttermost is Pantaleus in Greek. It can be translated completely or for all time. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he makes, always lives to make intercession for them. Do you hear that, friend? It means today, if you feel the animosity of God's displeasure over your sin, you can be saved today if you draw near to him through Jesus. No more guilt. No more condemnation. All sin done. Wiped away. And even to my fellow believers, I have to remind you, your relationship to God is not based upon your obedience to the law or your good or moral behavior. It never has been, nor never will. It is based upon what Jesus did for you as your high priest. And look at that verse again. How long is he interceding on your behalf? How long? Always he lives to make intercession. So if you think, well, I got to get my act together again before God's going to help me. No, 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 no. You repent and you draw near to him through your faith in Christ and be beloved by the Father and receive his help. This makes Jesus the central focus of our salvation. It is only Christ alone that can save us. And it is only Christ alone that can keep us saved. Folks, if you need to write this down, write it down. Jesus is either the perfect sacrifice or he is not. Jesus is either the perfect sacrifice or he is not. Which of those do you believe? When you study the scriptures, who is the only one that can come before the throne of God? Who is the only one who is deity enough to cover all of our sins with his blood? He is either the perfect sacrifice or he's not. Why do you live like he's not the perfect sacrifice? Why do you think you must bring your own little paltry contribution to the transaction? I want to give your minds and your souls rest. God loves you. 
tremendously, so much so that he sent his one and only begotten son to save you. And yet you continue to doubt that day in and day out that that's enough. It is enough. What it should do instead of making you turn from him and go, oh, I got to do something better now. I got to do something better. Just love him. Worship him. You shower upon him all your praises. You go to him every day and you say, thank you, God. Thank you so much for for the way that you have saved me through your son, Jesus. I'm going to count on that alone. And you allow that love, just like we learned, men, this past week, this past weekend, you allow that love for Jesus to transform you. Not that you're trying to earn his salvation or earn merit before him anymore, but because you love him. And you want your life to look like you love him, like you're walking worthy of him. That's what we need to do, believer. Rest in Christ Jesus, our Lord. He is the perfect sacrifice. Let's pray. Lord, as I scan and I read these words from Genesis 14 that were inspired by your Holy Spirit, these perfect words, I am impressed with Abram's victory over these kings, these powerful enemies. I am impressed, Lord, that Abram's faith was confident enough that he didn't need the possessions from any king whatsoever, but that he knew that you were the possessor of heaven and all things, and he had no need to worry or or feel like he needed any other material possessions. But, Lord, I am blown away that in this story, you introduce us the character of Melchizedek. That from the very beginning, you are planting seeds of your gospel to show us who your son is going to be when he arrives on the earth. That when he becomes incarnate, he becomes our great high priest. He becomes our king of righteousness. He becomes our king of peace. And that he wants us or wants to bless us with his body and his blood, which has reconciled us to you. And so, Lord, let us look to the true meaning of this story. Let us look to see salvific history of what you have done. And, Lord, I pray that our faith would rest upon Christ. That we would quit, Lord, doubting whether or not we have to live up to some moral standard but that we trust that Jesus has lived it for us. And Lord, I pray that we would go that next step, that that it's not just believing that, that if we truly believe that, we would love and adore Jesus and we would conform our lives to the image of his son because that's what pleases you. And we want to show and demonstrate our love towards you. So Lord, work in us today as we confess that, that we are sinners and that there is no salvation in us, but it is always, 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 and always will continue to be salvation in your Son, Christ Jesus. And of course, we pray this prayer because we know we are being interceded for by the work of Jesus Christ alone. Amen.